Well, we are in um, Ecclesiastes, of course, and um, uh, we're in the, the last half of chapter 8 here. And uh, the preacher here, he's going to be looking at some particular things, some common themes that we've been seeing the last few weeks, but, uh, but going into some of the, um, the solutions for us, some of the, the things that he gives us in order to get through some of the difficulties of life, uh, some of the things that we see, the injustices. And as I was reading through this, I was thinking through one particular thing that I think that we mostly do, and we do very well, is we, I think we overestimate, as people, what we can accomplish in the short term. We kind of uh, bite off more than we can chew, or we think we can accomplish a lot in very little time. And the other thing that I think that we do quite well is we underestimate what we can do in the long term. We don't have much patience. We don't have uh, a very good view of the long game. We don't have a very good view of, the, of small ball, so to speak, to use a baseball term, of just doing small things and expecting long-term good results. We don't do that very well. We want a lot right now. We want to see uh, results right now. And when we don't see results right now, we, we lose sight of the long game of what we can actually accomplish in the long term. And I think that as we look through this, we're going to see that this is part of what Solomon gives as a solution for some of our discouragements. As we look at this life and the injustices in life, we look at the particular things that uh, bring us some anxiety, bring us some pain, even some suffering. We underestimate the power of the long term. And really, at the end of the day, what it is is we don't trust really the process. We don't trust, ultimately, God's plan we don't ultimately trust God's timing and His ways. We don't trust that He's actually doing something that we can't see. So I want to pray and ask the Lord that He would meet us here in this place, in our hearts, in our minds, that He would help us to get perspective, that He'd help us to trust His plan, trust His ways, trust that He is at work, that He is sovereign, He's in control, He's doing things among us. And I think that the very heart of even what Eric was sharing uh, during the welcome and what I was echoing uh, in my welcome is that we see a lot of the results of long-term growth in people's lives. You know, the people that Eric mentioned, his wife and Forrest and many others, the, the worship team, it's not just, uh, you know, we look at someone, you know, playing an instrument and say, wow, this is amazing, but we actually see a life, the person, and we know where they came from. We know their history. I see the people that are serving in our kids' ministry, and I know where they were three years ago. And three or four years ago, you're maybe looking at their particular life or their marriage or whatever it is, and you can't picture them doing what they're doing today. That's what brings amazement to us. It's not the actual individual talents that people have to teach kids or to greet people or, or play an instrument, but we look around this church and we see the long-term effects of the gospel working in our lives. That's what blows my mind. It's not the, the finished product of what we do on a Sunday. It's seeing the people and the backgrounds and the history that they come from and seeing where God is taking them. But we have to get that perspective. We have to ask the Lord to help us to see those things now while things are a mess and have hope for the future, trusting in his long-term plan. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to see from that perspective to build in us a, a patience, a pursuit of joy, a pursuit of trust as we look to his word and ask him to help us to gain these things. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would quiet our hearts, our minds, that you'd settle our anxieties, our stresses, our worries, not that we would ignore them or pretend like they don't exist, but that we would bring them to you. And we would ask you to help us to see more and more with your eyes, your perspective, that we'd be able to trust you in your timing and plan. Because we know that we cannot see what's going to come tomorrow, although we're next week or the next three to five years. We don't know those things. And this is part of the reason why the things of today bring us anxiety and 
worry. But we know that you're trustworthy. We know that even though things in this life oftentimes don't make sense, they don't add up, they're unjust, some things are wrong, some things are evil and wicked and vile. But help us to to trust you and teach us how to trust you. Teach us what we can do in the meantime to trust you and to pursue joy and peace even amid a life that is maybe lacking peace and lacking joy. We trust your word. We trust that the truth and wisdom that it contains is for our joy and for our deeper trust in you and to glorify you in our lives. So help us, Lord, by the power of your spirit and through the working of your word to change us and transform us and to help us rest in the truth of the finished work of your son, Jesus, the work that he did on the cross. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're in chapter 8, verse 10. Here's what Solomon the preacher says here. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. We'll stop there for now, and we're going to continue as we go. But the preacher here opens up speaking about particularly hypocrisy. People who go in and out of the holy place, people who look good on the outside, but live hypocritically. They say one thing, but they do something different. And because justice is oftentimes not served speedily, he says, the heart of the people are set to do evil. It's easy to be a hypocrite when there's not an instant judgment for hypocrisy. If you can get away with a show for a little while, why not continue in it? If you receive some kind of blessing, people look at you and think that you're a great person. You have people fooled. If there's not instant justice, you're not revealed for who you are right away, well, why not just continue in that? You're getting some gain in life. You're getting some popularity. You're, you're doing things that are bringing about some, some good gift to you by putting on this show because justice isn't served swiftly. I mean, imagine for a second if Every time you sped, you're going down the road and you're putting your foot down a little bit too much. Imagine if every time you did that, your car sent your email a speeding ticket. If that was the case, if we had instant justice every time we were speeding, we wouldn't speed anymore, would we? If right away, no questions asked, you got a speeding ticket and you had to pay it, there was a fine attached, I'm sure that we would speed much less. But justice isn't served very quickly in that context. We get away often with speeding. We very rarely get caught. And so what do we do? We keep speeding. Because, well, if you don't get caught, why stop? And that's usually the case with what happens for us. We typically do the things, we break the rules, we, do the, we get away with the things that, that we get away with, and so therefore we keep doing them. If we don't get caught, those are the particular things that we will continue in. As long as we don't get caught right away, or if we think we can get away with it, then we will do it. This is why even in parenting, something like counting to three is not a very effective tool for discipline. You know, you see your son or your daughter has something, steals something from the daughter, and you say, son, listen, if you don't give that back to her, I'm going to count to three, and something bad's going to happen. And you, one... And the son's just sitting there holding the thing, just testing you. Two. You know how the next one, the num- next number is not three ever, is it? So it's two and a half, two and seven eighths. And then finally, you don't actually say three. You just say, okay, fine. I'm just going to take it from both of you. And, and now both of you can't have it. And you never actually do what you said you're going to do. You find some alternate version. And there's actually no consequence because you never actually get to three. And so what happens to the child? The child just knows, oh, I've never heard the number three in my life at the ripe old age of five. 
And so I'm going to keep doing things because I'm going to get away with it. Empty consequences, false threats, no consequences, so we just keep doing things as we do them. And it's, it's unjust because we get away with things that we shouldn't. A few weeks ago, I was working out front in my yard, and uh, my landscaper was over. I've mentioned him before to you guys. And I was working down below, and uh, the, this truck came up right behind his truck. His truck was parked on the side of uh, my house. This guy gets out, and he starts rummaging through Reuben's truck. I'm thinking, that doesn't look right. So I yell at the guy. I say, hey, hey, what are you doing? And he looks over at me, and he looks back in the truck, and he just starts grabbing a bunch of stuff out of Reuben's truck. Grabs two big pieces of equipment, throws in his truck, and he speeds off. I run in my house, I grab my keys, I run out to my car, I start trying to chase the guy down. Didn't know which way he went, I just kind of cruised around the neighborhood as much as I could, speeding, <laughs> because I knew I wouldn't get caught. <laughs> and um, I didn't find the guy, but I called the police, talked with them, uh, they came by. Later on, on, on Facebook Marketplace, I saw Ruben's stuff being sold. And uh, yeah, I didn't know what to do, I'm sitting here going, this is... Not a good situation. I call the police, but they say, no, there's nothing we can really do. You know, it's a few hundred bucks worth of equipment. There's no proof that it's actually Reuben's. He doesn't have receipts. And they said, sorry, we can't do anything. And so I was texting Reuben, and I said, hey, I found your stuff. And, and he's sitting there. He's saying, I'm going to go. I'm going to try to pretend like I'm going to buy it, and I'm just going to take it and run. I said, Reuben, do not do that. <laughs> That's the last thing you should do. In the meantime, during the day, before we saw the gear online, I texted a few of you guys that use Reuben as well, and I said, hey, here's what happened. If you want to chip in and help buy him some new gear, I'm sure he'd appreciate it greatly. And uh, so between the four or five of us, uh, we came up with about $500 that we could give Reuben. And at the end of the day, when I went out to pay him for the work, um, I gave him the check, and it was a lot larger than what he'd worked for. And, and he just immediately was like, no, 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 this is, it wasn't your fault, it was my fault. I shouldn't have parked there. I said, Reuben, that's the stupidest thing you've ever said. <laughs> that was not your fault. I said, I want to give this to you. And he said, no, 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 no. And I said, listen, this is, you're not just, you're not our landscaper. You're our friend. We love you. We love your, the work you do. And then he kept saying, no, 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 no. And then finally I said to him, Reuben, this isn't a gift from us. This is a gift from God. And right then, this 57-year-old man who's this hard, honest worker just melted right there in my driveway. He buried his face in his shoulder, just against his sleeve, and his chin was quivering. He just started weeping. And then uh, the whole time throughout the day, he said, no, it's fine, amigo. Tomorrow I'm just going to go. I'm going to work a little bit more, and I'll buy new gear. And he just goes on, and he just whistles. He whistles, and he works. And this was the whole day. And then at the end of the day, after he finally received this gift, he said to me, and he was very emotional, so he was only speaking in Spanish at this point, and he just said, sometimes I work too much, but it's hard to put food on the table. And then bad people do bad things, but then good people like you and your friends do good things. We rightfully get upset about things like this, these injustices. A man whose very livelihood is stolen and he has to go work even harder just so he can make a living. Whether it's things like this, or if it's other smaller injustices that happen in our lives, like you finally get to have a good nap and your child comes in and wakes you. That's an injustice. No matter what the injustice is, whether it's something small like that or if it's something larger, like someone's livelihood being stolen out of the back of their truck when they're just trying to be an honest, good, hard worker, it's good for us to stand up for many of these evil causes, like the preacher commended us to last week. And in this case, he's talking about religious hypocrisy. Maybe it's something even bigger than that, like abortion or racism. And it's hard to watch even friends go down those very paths. It's one thing to watch a friend be victimized by it. It's another thing to see a friend go down that actual path. We see sons and daughters or spouses get into things that they should not get into. Neighbors and coworkers, people leaving their families, committing different crimes, injustices against other people. But if we want to run and finish the race well, we have to keep this perspective that the preacher has for us here in verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, 
Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it won't be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. I told Reuben that day as we were texting at night and he wanted to go and pretend like he was gonna buy something. I said, Reuben, listen. I said, you should sleep well tonight instead. Go to bed tonight, sleep well because you're an honest, hard worker. God gave you a gift of $500 today and you can go and you can buy new gear and you don't have to risk your life or your well-being going and trying to get back some gear. I know it feels violating. I said, but the thing is, is that guy is miserable. But Reuben, you get to sleep well at night and this guy's miserable. He's gonna get caught someday. It's gonna catch up with him. It's just not today. But I told Reuben, I said, tonight our family already prayed for this guy and I hope that you would pray for him as well. And so the next time I saw Reuben, he just had a big smile on his face and he knows that he has his health. He didn't risk his life going to get you know, a, a nice you know, gas leaf blower back. But instead he got to come and show me his new leaf blower. And he was so happy and so thankful uh, that uh, so many people uh, blessed him. And then, of course, he tried to do work for me for free, and I said, nice try, buddy. I'm paying you today. <laughs> but the temptation for wrongdoing is there in our lives. It's the temptation to get close to the sirens, as I mentioned uh, last week. It might be easier or feel better to do something that's easy enough. You know that justice isn't going to come quickly. So when you see something on the side of the road like this guy did, you just take it. It's easy money. The temptation, maybe not to steal for some of us, is there, but the temptation to take the shortcuts is there because justice isn't served quickly. But the preacher says that it's going to catch up with us eventually. It's going to catch up with this guy that stole. It's going to catch up with us as we cut corners. We know that we might not get caught now, but we will stand before God. And it's worthwhile, even rewarding, to fear God now and follow him now, especially when the temptation to cut corners is there, when speedy justice doesn't exist. But we have to desire not just to start life well, start our life as a person, as a human being, or even as a Christian, not just to start well, but we have to have the desire to finish well. And to do that, we have to keep this perspective that it would go well for us to fear God now and trust him in the process now, even when injustice happens. That it is a marathon in life. And to finish the race well, we have to keep that perspective. Last week, my family and I were treated to a, a crawfish boil. And boy, was that delicious. I had 200 of these things that are called mud bugs. They're just these little things that look like just kind of uh, seawater cockroaches about this big, and over the course of maybe five or six hours, I ate about 200 of them, and it was so good. And our family were treated by our friends. This is the second year we've done this. He has us over and also his pastor from his church, and he kind of calls it his pastor appreciation day. Just wants to treat us to a, just a nice relaxing afternoon eating mud bugs. <laughs> and, I, and I love it, <laughs> we love it. And the conversation came up between me and, and his pastor uh, because our friend, he was asking us just uh, what life as a pastor is life and what life in ministry is life. And his pastor brought up a stat that uh, is a stat that I know of. Um, he says that 1% of pastors finish their career as pastors. 1%. The last I'd seen this stat, it was 5%. Uh, so somewhere between 1% and 5%. This is probably just a, a more uh, recent stat. So imagine you go in for a job interview or choose a career path in college and uh, the counselor at college or the person you're interviewing with says, oh, by the way, only 1% of people who enter this field finish well. I mean, you'd be a little crazy to say, oh, that sounds great. I wanna, I wanna sign up for this. And it's been said by many people before that to plant a church, either you have to have a whole lot of faith or be a little bit crazy or maybe a little bit of both. And in my case, that is the case. A lot of faith and a little crazy. And he asked us, though, in this moment, what are some of the reasons for why this happens? And, and so his pastor was sharing a few, and I shared a few. And some of the common answers we gave that we collectively said, yeah, this is one of the problems, is we have sometimes a desire or the, the felt need to be a superman. You feel as if you have to fix all the problems of all the people all the time. And when we don't fix the problems, we become exhausted. You feel like failures. You've let people down. 
You feel the need to care for and please everyone. And the biggest proportion of reasons for pastors failing in ministry is not moral failure, though that is in, on the list, but it's a continual criticism and conflict from within the body, trying to fix all the problems, all the leaks that are happening, not to mention then the weight of Scripture itself, the mandate to deliver God's Word faithfully every single week and in every single counseling appointment, every single meeting, giving an account to God for the souls that you care for. Those things weigh heavy upon a pastor. And I don't say any of this for sympathy because I love what God has given me. I love what God has called me to, what he's entrusted to me. Though it scares me, it brings a lot of healthy, good fear into my life, but I love what I do. But I, I share this instead because I hope that by you seeing some of my own pitfalls, I hope to give you some insight into your own pitfalls and how to avoid going after the song of the siren for you, how to have the long game in mind, how to not just go after some short-term temporary uh, successes, but have a better picture for the long view, long-term success, to learn how to run the marathon when the shortcut looks easy, when cutting corners and when a lack of justice is looking more tempting to pursue that particular path. For me, I've been aware of this one or 5% problem, and I'm increasingly aware of the cause of the problem, particularly in my own life. And so I've been able to make some important and good, purposeful adjustments in my life over the last couple years to remind myself of important truths. One example I could give you is I had lunch once with uh, Dave Zeman, and I was showing him some pictures. He just uh, helped us get into our home, uh, and uh, I was showing him some pictures of some things I was working on at the house, and he said, I didn't... I didn't know you're you're handy with your hands and building things and and um, and I said um, I said well it's just kind of a, a hobby that I've gotten into I've just sort of learned and picked up and kind of fake it till you make it kind of a thing and and uh, well, he said it makes sense that you enjoy it so much and I asked him what he meant by that and he said well in your job you don't really get to see a whole lot of finished work you don't get to see a whole lot of finished business you know you finish a sermon and you know I'm going to go home today probably maybe take a little nap and then tomorrow morning. I'm going to jump into the next sermon. Counseling never really ends. Discipleship never ends. You know, even as we were mentioned earlier, we see people on stage or greeting, and we've seen a process of three or four years of people. You're never done. And so for me, I realized in this uh, time having lunch with Dave that he pointed out something that really helped me over the next few years, that I have these particular hobbies that give me some short-term results so that I don't get frustrated or expect short-term results in the more important part of my life. That now I get to actually finish something and I find a lot of uh, joy in projects, building things, making things, because when I finish, I get to enjoy this thing. And especially when it's something that my family or my friends get to enjoy as well, that gives me a certain satisfaction. I get to enjoy this finished project because the other things in my life are never finished. And so rather than putting this expectation that I need to have some kind of finished work over here, now I kind of get that, that itch scratch, so to speak, over on this side with some of these other things. Because in my life, I can't leave work at work. These things are never finished. When my livelihood and my job, so to speak, is tied up in even my friendships, and my kids and my kids' friendships, my social life, everything is wrapped up into one thing. And even though my personal faith is not synonymous with my job, it's not, but it's also intrinsically tied to it somehow because I bring my faith into my work, as you all should be. I just do it in a very different way. And so it's difficult for me to have separation sometimes in my life. And so projects become a healthy way to give me decompression, to help me find my creative side, to let my creative side breathe in my life, to start and finish something and enjoy the satisfaction of enjoying a finished product. And in our lives, we all have these particular tugs, these particular things that draw us, whatever it might be. It might be this desire for a, a finished work or it might be something else. And for me, it's these tugs of wanting to see some measurable results in life. And I don't want to be pulled in an ungodly direction to try to have measurable results in an area of life that I should not have 
a desire for measurable results. And if I don't have that, I might be brought to a point of personal mental exhaustion because I just want to see results. I just want to see things happen now. It gets frustrating when I see the same old thing happen in my own life or in other people's lives. And when I don't see results, it can bring some exhaustion. I want to see a, a selfish reward for my labor sometimes. And that doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen often. I go home sometimes after a sermon or whatever, and then maybe Monday or Tuesday I get a phone call and I just think to myself, is preaching even helping? Is this even making a difference in people's lives? Didn't they just hear the sermon last week or the week before? But I can't have that view, church. I can't think that way. I can't think that this short term is gonna give these great results. I have to think with the long term that even though injustice is gonna happen in this life, I have to have a bigger perspective than what happens right now. And so God gives these different gifts, these different ways for me to kind of scratch that itch over here so that I can put that desire to see instant results in an area that I shouldn't have that expectation, I can put that aside. What happens for pastors in particular, I think, is they don't think oftentimes that it's worthwhile to trust and fear the Lord and his plan and his ways. And so the pressures from without and from within, they build up. And the patience that is required to trust God's word and his ways, well, the sirens start luring us away. And so now we might start pursuing success based on numbers and attendance, dollars. Or one of the more crass ways I've heard it said over the years is just seeing butts and seats. That's a real way that some churches describe success. Hitting goals and five-year plans rather than letting the church be what the church is supposed to be. A living, breathing, not organization, but organism. The body of Christ, which is messy, which is not perfect, which has a whole lot of sin in it, but is being washed by the Savior himself through his word. A, a body that ebbs and flows in and out of various seasons. A body, a church that is sometimes strong, but sometimes church, our church is very weak. Sometimes church, our church is struggling. Sometimes church, we're an army. And other times church, we're gonna be a hospital. Sometimes we'll be a school, but all the time church, I hope we're a family. I wanna let the church be the church. I wanna let the church be a body of sinful people who are striving together and sometimes even failing, but failing forward, failing towards our Savior. I wanna let the church be the bride that Christ is washing, the, the bride that Christ died for, not a business or an organization that me and a few other people get to run. But see, you can't measure those other things, can you? How do you measure a strong church or, or when a church is weak? I've often said that in our weakest times as a church, I think that we've been our most healthy as a church. Not because we have some amazing measurable results, but because we're learning to trust our Savior in our weakest moments as a church. And I can't explain that to some of my other friends. I can't explain that to some of my other pastor friends. They say, how are things going? I'm going, it's going really great. Really, why? Well, we've got a lot of sin going on. <laughs> that sounds terrible, bro. No, I, I know, I know. But listen to what's happening amidst all the sin that's going on. And I, and I can't just tell them some quick numbers or percentages. I have to go through a long story of redemption. And I don't mind telling those long stories but I don't have quick numbers to point to all these measurable successes. And if God wouldn't give me these other common graces, I think this is where Solomon's gonna be going here in a second. If he doesn't give us these common graces, like for me it's projects, well what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna turn the church into a project. And how dare me to even think about turning his bride into a project. The church is not a project. Your life is not the Lord's project even. You are his beloved. You're his son, you're his daughter. You're not a project to him. You're not a project to me. 
And so God gives us common graces that we can go to in order to relieve some of that, that insatiable desire to maybe see some results here and there so we can leave the things be that need to be the way they are and we find some kind of solace in these other things that God gives us. God gives us outlets that he provides us with that keep us from mental exhaustion and keep me from turning the church into a business or an organization or a project. I want my hobbies to do what a hobby is there for and I want the church to be what the church is to be. Now for all of us, we have these different tugs, these different sirens that woo us. Maybe you're like me, longing for measurable success, longing to feel like your toil and work is actually doing something. You go and you clock in, you clock out, you kind of feel like, what's the point of my job? I'm not really accomplishing much. It seems like you're just on a hamster wheel. Moms, am I speaking to you yet? You feel sometimes like you just do the same thing over and over again. You just wonder if you're three-year-old, you're four-year-old, you're eight-year-old, you're 16-year-old, you're 18-year-old, you're 37-year-old, you're 38-year-old is even listening. This isn't just for moms that have kids at home. I know that moms that you have your kids out there and, and, and you're just hoping that you get to see results of your faithful parenting for the 18 or whatever many years that you did. But in the immediate, moms and dads, you look at your kids and you go, is this even working? Is it even working? I want results, but I can't see results. And so now we measure our success based on measurable results, like if they get an award at school, or if they get their grades to be a certain thing, or behavior change, or with adults, maybe it's seeing them have a successful career with your adult children, rather than being patient and enduring in the process. We get frustrated. We can't see the long game. Or maybe for you, it's feeling that you deserve a little bit more in life. You've earned maybe a reward. You feel like you need to be appreciated for what you've done. And when we don't have good outlets for those things and we're looking for that somewhere else, we go to sinful places. That desire to have a reward and be appreciated, these are the things that are associated with the reasons why people make decisions to go to drinking excessively or pornography different things that we go after because we feel these, these needs and we don't have a good outlet for them, so we go elsewhere. And so Solomon goes on in verse 14 and he has a prescription for us and it's not more cowbell, just in case you're wondering. In verse 14, maybe it is cowbell, I don't know, but verse 14, there's a vanity that takes place on earth that there's righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there's wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. So good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. I said, this is also vanity. And so I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So Solomon's weaving into the next uh, section through this uh, thought process. He knows that life is a marathon, that the shortcut looks tempting because of justice being delayed. But he says then, in light of that, don't try to do the shortcuts, but rather enjoy the honest life. Enjoy the, these things that God gives you. He commends joy because man has nothing better to do since there's going to be injustice. So in the meantime, we ought to eat and drink and seek after joy. Seek after the common things that God gives us because this is a marathon. The shortcut will look tempting, but we need to take in what God has given us now. Enjoy the honest life. This is why I told Reuben, Reuben, sleep well tonight. Sleep well tonight. Enjoy what God has given you. Justice won't be done tonight in this other guy's life, but you can sleep well tonight because you're an honest, hard worker. And it's guys like Reuben who do live that way. They don't know what's coming tomorrow, but he whistles while he works. He doesn't have much, but he smiles every time he sees me, and he enjoys the labor that God gives him, and he enjoys what God provides for him. Solomon here commends joy to us. He says, I know that life is not fair. I know there's injustice, but you need to pursue joy. Fight for joy. The ability to find joy regardless of our circumstances is a treasure for us. For me, I've got these various 
parts of my life that I protect very well nowadays because I know that if I don't have these things, I'm going to start wandering and making something into something else. I'm going to take the church and make it into something else. I'm going to take my faith and turn it into something else. I'm going to expect something from my kids that they're not supposed to provide for me. And so I have various things, whether it's you know, gardening and farming, things like that, just being out. I just wander and tinker outside. Usually don't get anything accomplished, but it's good for me. Coaching, mentoring my sons and their friends, my marriage, my life with my wife, home projects. These are things that bring so much decompression for me, playing music, whatever it might be. These are the things that bring this relief to me. And so I don't go and, and make the church or make my personal life, my faith or, or my marriage or whatever into something that it shouldn't be. But I want to make something very clear. Because you know, might have noticed that even in the list and the examples I've given with you know, gardening, baseball and all these things, I haven't mentioned God at all as it pertains to these outlets. A church word or a church phrase that we use to describe these particular things is what I've already mentioned so far as God's common graces. These are graces that God gives us, gifts that he gives us. And these things have their place and their purpose in life. However, these things cannot save you. I know that home projects can't save me. I know that they can't bring me ultimate joy. I know that coaching and baseball and my family they can't save me. They can't bring me ultimate joy, ultimate happiness, ultimate fulfillment. These things can quickly become idols. They can quickly become medicine that we run to in order just to fix our problems. But they need to find their proper place, and they have a proper place in our life. God gives them in particular to us, and has, there's a, a proper place for them. I remember a couple years ago, I was talking with Eric, and I was going through just a difficult time, uh, having a lot of just stress or anxiety or whatever you might call it. And he said to me, you know, you just need to go to a baseball game with your family. Go and relax, enjoy baseball, enjoy your family. And I got all kind of Joby legalistic on him. And I said, I don't need baseball. I don't need to do that. I just need the gospel. I just need Jesus. And he said, well, I know that's what you ultimately need, but you can't even get there right now. And I've I noticed that from that time, from that conversation, sometimes, church, you ever have this feeling like you go to open up your Bible and the, the cover of your Bible just kind of seems like it weighs 100 pounds? You, you want to believe the truth. You want to believe the gospel. You want to recite the gospel to you. You want to preach the gospel to yourself. You just want to rest in Christ. But for some reason, you just can't. You have doubt. You have fear. You have pride. You have anxiety, stress, your, your, your vision's just kind of foggy. And so what I did is, I think a day or two later, I took Eric's advice, we went to a baseball game, enjoyed just being outside, hearing the roar of the crowds, watching our team play, enjoying my family, just being in a place that brought some decompression. And the next morning, even actually on the way home, I was just thinking to myself on the way home, thank you, Lord, for giving me the gift of my family, for even just a trivial thing like baseball. And the next morning I woke up and I remember I was able to see and believe the gospel so much easier because I'd been decompressed. I'd been relieved a bit. The fog kind of cleared. Now those things can't be our end goal. Eric's point wasn't go watch a baseball game, then you'll be ultimately happy. But these things, these common graces are means to a greater end. If I just went to a baseball game or just worked out in my garden and just relayed all my problems the whole time and just recited my problems, then there would be no point to going to a baseball game. No point in playing music or going out and walking in the garden. If all I did was reinforcing the very things I was trying to get relief from, then those things would be pointless. They have to be means to bring me somewhere else. And as I've loosened my legalistic belt, so to speak, over the past few years, rather than religiously neglect myself or legalistically try to cleanse or purify myself. Rather, what I've learned to do in the last two or three years is thank God every single day more and more than I ever have for even just the little things that he gives me. Because I know that tragedy can come at any moment 
The Lord has given and the Lord can take away. But these things, these gifts, these common graces aren't meant to be the ultimate. What they are supposed to do, let's say this, say it's a baseball sitting on the ground and there's a ray of sun that highlights this baseball. And I see this baseball and I find joy over seeing this baseball because I get to go play catch with my kids now. But the point of even having this thing illuminated, this gift that God has given, is not to focus in on this thing, but to, to draw my eyes and follow that ray of sunlight back up to the sky so ultimately I see the one who gave me the gift. And so now when I see the things, a house project, baseball, my family, I don't find ultimate joy in those things, at least I shouldn't and I try not to, but now I see these things and I see the God who gave them to me. And I say, God, you are such a good father. You give me even these little trivial things to decompress me a bit, to help me clear my mind so I can see you, so I can behold your son and what he has done for me. And Solomon says in verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, just these sleepless nights, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. We can't figure out this life. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. Much of this enjoyment of the fruit of your labor and fearing God and trusting his ways has to do, church, with rest. With rest and trusting God in the meantime while injustices happen, while life isn't going well. Solomon here speaks of sleeplessness when we just go over uh, life over and over again in our minds laying in bed at night. My brain goes 100 miles an hour almost all the time. Historically, I've not slept all that well because I think a lot. And this is why these common graces of God are given to me because it helps my brain slow down. It helps me actually just enjoy the moment, enjoy being outside, enjoy my family because my mind goes 100 miles an hour. I read this fact the other day that two, there's 200 billion gigabytes per year of information that are uploaded to the internet every single year. 200 billion gigabits. I don't even know what a gigabit is. It sounds like a lot though. And there's 200 billion of them. Yet we still cannot find out the mysteries of God. All that information. And yet we cannot find out the mysteries of God. And here I am staying up at night trying to figure out my life and figure out what God's doing in my life. Like that's gonna work rather than just rest and trust in his plan and the long-term game that he has. Rather than just being able to enjoy common graces, I stay up late at night thinking and thinking and thinking. I'm not gonna figure anything out that way. So I have to build things into my life that help me find rest. Otherwise, I'm gonna turn my faith and figuring out God and the church and my family into my projects. I can't do that. My mom was talking to my cousin once, and she was telling him how, you know, Job's starting a little farm garden thing in his house. He's even bought some chickens. This is, you know, about a year or so ago, and my cousin just marveled, and he said, does that guy ever stop or slow down? And I was talking to my cousin later, and I said, I said, Rob, that's actually, that is how I slow down. I need mental rest. And so I have to put things in my life that bring me mental rest. Physical rest isn't so much what I need as much as I need mental rest because it's impossible to know what God is doing and yet I try to figure out what God is doing all the time. So rather I've learned just to enjoy today and not try to be sleepless, trying to be God. Here's an example that I'd just like to close with. When mom and dad know the right time to bring kids into some of the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. Mom and dad sometimes are on the brink of maybe a divorce or there's difficulty going on in a marriage because they live in a broken world. Many things go on behind the scenes in a marriage, but they want the kids to have a normal life. Maybe the child is four or five years old, maybe even eight or nine years old, and so the family, they, they make family time, mom and dad do. They don't fight in front of the kids or try not to. They try to maintain routines for the kids' sake. Mom and dad know the right time to bring the kids into some of these conversations, but they don't want them staying up late at night at age seven trying to figure out if mom and dad are staying together or what's happening in life. God's ways similarly are beyond us. 
We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know why things happen. We don't know why there's certain injustices. We don't know how long certain injustices are going to be going on, how long justice is going to be delayed. And we often try to drive ourselves to the point of exhaustion, trying to figure things out. But he knows that we can't know everything because we can't handle everything, just like the six-year-old, seven-year-old can't handle everything. There may be a day when God reveals certain things to us, but maybe not. And in the meantime, it's none of our business. Whatever God wants to reveal or not reveal is not our business. Whatever mom and dad choose to let the kids in on or not in on, that's, that's their wisdom that they're choosing to do that. And mom and dad don't want the kids to take on anything that they shouldn't have to. And then likewise, God doesn't want us to take on anything that is not for us. God's desire for us is to trust him, to trust his ways, trust his word, and enjoy the ways that he has given us to find rest, whether it's physical rest or mental rest, to find enjoyment in life. And ultimately, for these things to point us to him and his goodness so we don't stay up all night in worry and anxiety trying to figure out tomorrow. He withholds that information because he knows what's best for us. He knows what we need to know and what we don't need to know. And ultimately, we have to understand and believe that Jesus himself is our rest. When you feel condemnation, when you feel like a failure, when you feel like there's not results going on in your life, you're not accomplishing what you hope to accomplish, maybe you're still battling the same old recurring sin that you've always been battling, we tend to think that the opposite of condemnation is sanctification. Why is that? Because sanctification means results. Sanctification is something's changing in my life. Look, I used to do the sin and now I don't. See, we feel condemnation when we're failing somewhere, right? when we're either committing the same sin over and over or we don't see results. So we think the opposite of that or the solution for that or the antidote of that is, well, if I just would see results, if I could just get out of that sin, then I wouldn't feel condemnation. Well, that is not true, church. Results are not the opposite of condemnation. No, the opposite of condemnation, the antidote to condemnation is not results and sanctification, but it's justification. It's forgiveness. It's your standing before Christ. What brings you out of condemnation is not you doing better. It's knowing that while you're doing bad, you've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's standing in the truth of the good news that Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner. Sanctification comes later. But to battle condemnation, it's not seeing results and seeing change and getting out of the circumstances that you're in. No, it's believing the truth that you have been justified because of Jesus Christ. God's word says there's no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for those who are growing in Christ Jesus, doing good things for Christ Jesus, who are seeing results in Christ Jesus. No, there's no condemnation for those who are just simply resting in Christ Jesus, that you have been adopted into his family through his blood. Now the promise that we get, and this is what's so good about the good news, is the promise is that those who are justified are going to be sanctified. We're gonna be glorified. We are gonna be changed. But the beginning of that, the starting point of that, of being free from that condemnation, being free of that, that guilt and shame of not seeing results in your life, of worrying about all the injustices and finding rest is, is just resting in the cross of Jesus Christ. Resting in this truth of justification. That even while injustice is going on, even while you are struggling in your sin, you can find freedom from that condemnation, those lack of results, by resting in Christ, trusting in what he has done. And so for me, I combat the condemnation of feeling like a failure, not by turning church into a measurable commodity, or my personal faith and measuring it into my level of sanctification, but by resting in the finished work of the cross of Christ, knowing that he knows and appoints everything in my life and appoints everything in the life of our church and in my family. I rest in the cross, and that ultimately lets me breathe deep and relax and let the church be the church and let me be me and let Jesus be Jesus. And I thank God that in the meantime, he helps me sleep at night by giving me many common graces 
common graces in life that I can enjoy to cut the weeds and the vines. This is what I, I call things like baseball and projects. All these things are like machetes. They cut the weeds, they cut the vines so I can get to the stream of living water. These things aren't the stream of living water, but these things help me create a path so I can get to the stream of living water. And I thank God that he gives me these gifts so I can see clearly and blow the fog away so I can see the beauty of his son Jesus, so I can keep my eyes fixed upon him. Let me pray now and ask that the Lord would give us wisdom on how we can pursue, as Solomon commends us to, to pursue joy and contentment Pursue joy in Christ through the common graces, but finding ultimately joy in Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us so many of these gifts, gifts that aren't to be neglected but to be enjoyed by all of us, whether it's, as Solomon mentioned, food and drink, or whether it's projects or sports or our kids, our marriages, these are common things you give to all men, all, all women. Things you give because you're a good God and you love to give good gifts to your kids and you give these things to us so that we can find joy even in the midst of an unjust world, a world that doesn't make sense sometimes, a world that's unfair a world that in the short term seems pointless and empty. But you give us these gifts so that we can run this marathon, so we can find rest throughout our day, both mental and physical, and ultimately so that we can find the spiritual rest that we find only in you. These things that cause us to slow down a bit and sit back and give you thanks, not just for these particular common graces, but ultimately for the saving grace you give us through your Son, so God, help us to be a people who give you thanks, who learn to trust you in the long game, not just the short term, but the long term. We trust what you're doing in our kids' lives, in our, the life of our marriage, our families, our church, and in this whole world. Help us to trust you. We thank you, Lord. We love you, and it's in the mighty name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.